Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in him. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose with which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we admit as we begin here this morning that we can tend to make uh, men big in our eyes and our God small. And we pray through our time here in Ephesians and even in this first chapter that it will do the work of making you and your grace enlarged in our minds and our hearts and even humbling us to trust you all the more. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I begin this morning, uh, I am here to ultimately inform you that Christianity has a great enemy. There is an enemy who has come against Christians, who is bold, he's fierce, he's brazen, and intense. This man has made it his life's mission to come and find Christians wherever they may be and to arrest them, to um, seize them, to make their lives a ruin. He's gone out of his way to get permission from the needed officials so that he can show up. And friends, he's not just here to arrest men. He will, in fact, also arrest women and lead them out and bring them to trial so that they might be accused, and in many cases, they are in, in prison for long periods of time, they are beaten, and in some cases, they are killed. Friends, this enemy, he didn't stop at this. He went out of his way to oversee and be pleased with the execution of Christians. And you under, need to understand, these, this, these executions were not of violent men who deserved to be put down. It was not of, of even robbers or thieves or, or, or the like. No, this enemy will oversee executions of peaceful, loving Christians, of which many are a lot like you. This enemy declares and makes it known by threatening people that if they follow Jesus and his path, he will see to it that they are taken out. But I'm also here this morning 
to tell you and remind you that this enemy has been subdued. This enemy has been taken out, not sniped, not killed. No lightning bolts have come down out of heaven against him. No, friends, this enemy has been subdued because he's been changed. He's been transformed. Uh, You know the scene because a blinding light beamed down out of heaven around him. And he heard from Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And from that minute onward, Saul would never be the same. This man began as Saul. And now as he sits in prison, the man who used to win prison and oversee the execution of Christians is now a Christian who sits in prison who himself will someday be executed. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul's a good name. It's the kind of name that you would want to name one of your children in their era. Now, why is that? Well, because Saul was one of these names that was in connection with Israel's first king, Saul. Uh, Saul was a man who was, he was tall. He was handsome. He was winsome. He was a strong leader. And so it was a name that you popularly would apply to one of your children in hopes that maybe one of your kids would be like this Saul. And It's interesting here that Saul's name shifted to Paul. Now, you know what Paul means. Paul means small. (laughs) So that this man who began as Saul and thought, I'm going to assist the Lord by arresting and persecuting Christians. And yet, really, friends, it was only once big Saul became small Paul that God would actually be able to use him. Uh, Paul speaks about it in, in 2 Corinthians. He, he talks about his ministry in this way. He says, but we have treasure, meaning the gospel, meaning the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, we have this treasure and it's in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In other words, Paul says, I'm a cup, but the type of cup I am, I'm not, I'm not stainless steel. I'm not titanium. I'm like a clay pot. I mean, if you drop me from a foot onto the ground, I will shatter. I'm weak. And yet God made it his will that he would choose these clay pots to hold the most precious thing the world has ever heard, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And fascinating to us in a book that will highlight God radically breaking into our lives and changing us is that the change that Paul is referencing, it's not... A change that's in theory. Friends, for Paul, as for you and I, this has meat on these bones. It's all experience. He's experienced this change. And so when Paul opens up with this greeting here, he wants us to see that in line with God interrupting his life and changing his course, this was the plan and the will of God. Paul was not some sort of self-appointed apostle. Look at verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Yeah, so that the connection is, this was God's plan that he would be an apostle. Paul didn't wake up one day and say, well, I think these Christians might be onto something. I I think I'm going to hear them out and I'm going to travel down their road and and, and see if this is true and real. No, he was on the path to persecute and God interrupted. This apostle, this messenger, that is one who brings the message to a particular group of people, this 
people that he is bringing this message to, the Ephesians, we ask, well, who are they? Well, they are people like you and I who are busy living their lives as saints, as Christians. Paul calls them saints, meaning people of faith. They believe in the truth of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they are saints, which means set apart, um, holy ones. They're anointed. Uh, Saints, friends, it's not just reserved for a special few who are in heaven with halos around their heads. All those who trust in Christ here right now are saints. And so Paul's writing saints, Christians like you and I, in Ephesus. And Ephesus was, by every definition, it was antithetical to the Christian walk, this town, the city. It was one of the major coastal cities, um, like one of the major coastal cities that we live nearby. It, it would be a bit like that, but you sprinkle in a little bit of Las Vegas into it. So you have a lot of power, you have a lot of corruption, you have a lot of moral decay, um, and, and you find it's also a financial staple in the empire. It's a port town. It's Ephesus. And during Paul's second and third missionary journeys, he, he makes it to the great city of Ephesus, and while he's there, he sees that what has happened to him will happen to others. Some, in this case of the church of Ephesus, some will turn from the synagogue worship of the Jews, and some will turn from the pagan worship of idolatry, like the Greeks, and you bring together these two groups of people so that they will worship Jesus, and, and not Jesus the man, but Jesus the Lord and man. And... Paul, as he comes to Ephesus on these on this journey, one of them, he spends three years with the Ephesians. Three years pastoring in their midst, teaching them, living amongst them. And it is to these Christians, almost a decade later, that Paul writes from prison. And as Paul writes, he's not there. He's not there to complain about his circumstances. He wants to make sure that they have a message that's clear in their mind. Um, uh, one that is bringing both grace and peace to them. And it's very fitting for a congregation that's made up of both ethnically Jewish people and ethnically Gentile people that he would bring the Greek charis, that is grace, and he would bring a, a, a greeting of, of peace, that is shalom, the, the Jewish shalom. And the source of this is not really coming from Paul. So Paul's not saying, I would really like you to have grace and peace, he says, from God. This peace and this grace that is to come to this mixed group of people, the source of it itself was from God. And before we get into the meat of this epistle, I just want to pause for one minute and sort of give you the lay of the land. So for those of you taking notes, maybe this will be helpful if this is not already familiar to you. I I wish I could spend, you know, 45 minutes laying out a map for you, which I could point out the, here's the cities, here's the restaurants, here's the gas stations, here's the rivers, here's the mountains. I'm just going to lay out the big picture. Okay. Here's the land and the sea. And we'll get into some of the particulars later on. But the big picture is chapters one, two, and three of Ephesians are all emphasizing doctrine, faith, teaching, what we believe, what Paul is saying, this is what is true. And then chapters four, five, and six will be primarily emphasizing what we do in light of what we believe. So in other words, our Christian walk. So the the, the epistle is split perfectly down the middle. One hand doctrine, the other hand walking out what we believe. And as we will try and emphasize these things, even though there's a, a, a nice clear division for us, these things ultimately are inseparable. 
Because what we believe has to be connected to what we do. Um, Faith and works must join together. If not, the work is not good. Or the faith is not real. And so part of Paul's message will be to make both of these clear for the Ephesians. And so, if this small Paul had a message, a message that had changed the world, what is that message? Well, it begins with a dad, with a father. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, as we just pause right here, I want you to know we are entering what will be the longest sentence in our New Testaments. Uh, This sentence actually begins at verse 3, and it doesn't conclude until verse 14. And thankfully, uh, in the Greek Bibles, you can read it straight through like that, but in our English Bibles, they put in some periods because they want to help us out, and so we can pause at certain moments. But you need to understand this is one long, flowing thought in which Paul begins to somewhat do a spiral coming to several subjects, and it is rich. It, It is very rich here. Um, This is not some sort of, uh, you know, a glass of chocolate milk where it's really cold, you can just chug it. But when you get grandma's Christmas fudge, you take a bite and you kind of mull it over and savor it. And that's the type of thing we're in here, at least in in the introduction here of Ephesians. It's rich. And with what we find in this long sentence are words that with which for some raise feelings of anxiety. For others of us, these words can raise feelings of worry or debate. We come across words like predestination or choosing or election. These types of words, they can elicit some sort of visceral reaction in us. And so, on the very outset, church, I want you to understand a couple things I'd like to highlight before we really dive in. First, I hope you catch that this section was written to be encouraging, not discouraging. So if you walk away this morning discouraged, it will be because you aren't really hearing what Paul is saying to you. Now, I understand in a church as theologically as diverse as ours, there's going to be various opinions about how this all gets worked out. And for me, on my part, I will be teaching from my understanding and my convictions on these things. But if you're committed to a different position, that's, that's fine. I just don't want anyone walking away discouraged. Because that would be the exact opposite of the thrust and the tone of this letter. Second, I want you to see this word or phrase, in love. In love, God predestined us. You see that at the end of verse 4, right before he gets into verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption. So, Whatever you do, don't make this say something different. Whatever predestination is, it is, it is not the void of love. Paul says, in love, so that we can trust that this is a good thing. This isn't to raise anxiety. No, man, I already have enough anxiety. Don't you already have enough to worry about? Don't you already have enough to stress out about? This is written to take away that. This is written to relieve that from you. To give you a sense of breathing a sigh of relief. Uh, That's what I need this morning. Third, I I want you to know that this idea, what we see here from this passage, this isn't my idea. Uh, This isn't theologians who spend a lot of time writing about these things. It's, It's not even Paul's idea. This is God's idea that has been revealed to us. 
this is the Lord's plan. And lastly, I hope you see this morning, as I mentioned earlier, this whole thing begins with the Father. This is embedded in a relationship with God as our Father, and we are his children. So surely, this cannot be speaking in terms of us being like robots or pieces of chess on the chess table. No way. Because Christ has loved us, we will in turn love him. Uh, Just as the father loves the child and therefore the child in turn loves the father. This truth causes Paul to celebrate the fact that he's been blessed here by our heavenly father, particularly through or in Christ. Now, for some of you, I know that after service this morning, you're going to be tempted. You're going to want to come up to me, especially you saints who've been in many churches for many years. You're going to be tempted and say, well, here's my illustration of how I can resolve the tension of of God's sovereign will and man's uh, free will. And you're going to give me these illustrations. And let me just encourage you, please don't. I, I've, I've, I've heard them all, and quite frankly, I've spent more time reading about this particular issue and hearing more lectures than I just dare care to admit. And so perhaps better for us that we spend our, our time trying to put our finger where we know for sure. Um, much like with the Trinity, there are, there are issues with the Trinity where I say, I know this for sure, and there are other things where I say, there's some mystery here. I think it's like that with this issue. Um, And yet, that should not discourage us from trying to understand what we can understand. So, with that in mind, let's let's shoot for that again. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that is in the heavenly places. But when it comes to the Old Covenant, the blessings were what? When you think of the Old Testament, the blessings were primarily physical, weren't they? So God's people, they're looking for the land. They're looking for the crops. They're looking for fresh water, cold water, running all the time. They're looking for peace. They're looking for a kingdom and walls and stability. And in some sense, it was there. Uh, The blessings physically were somewhat there. But in the New Testament, there is a turn, a shift, in which our blessings, your blessing, my blessing, is primarily not physically oriented, but spiritually oriented. Uh, This is key for us, and and yet that doesn't mean that God is not caring for our physical um, issues. To quote Spurgeon, he says, The God that gives us heaven surely will give us all that is needed on the road there. He who is guaranteed to bring us there, he's not going to starve us along the way. In other words, the Lord that has given you heaven, isn't he going to supply you everything that you need to get to that heaven? Including physical provision. And and yet, for the Christian, that doesn't mean that our eyes turn off of the spiritual need. There's a spiritual thing that's going on that you and I need to wrestle with here. The Christian is sort of like a fiancé who's engaged, and they have a ring on their finger, and the promise of this wedding day is theirs. There's joyful blessing in this anticipation, and though the blessing is future and heavenly, It doesn't stop the couple from experiencing the blessing of real hope and happiness in the days leading up to it. So the the couple may not be living in in the same home, but you spend your time with your loved one and there's this anticipation. So too it is for the Christian that these spiritual blessings that are real and are ours, we we live in an anticipation towards that even now waiting for this blessing that will be ours spiritually to come through a particular avenue, which is Christ. This is how God has blessed us. He's blessed us in Christ, meaning he was our doorway to that access of this blessing. 
And if that is the case, we come to ask in verses 4 through 5, how did this all come about? Well, it tells us this was all the plan of God. Look at verse 4 through 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. And that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So we, we come here in this moment to the purpose of the choosing and adoption. It is our sanctification to be made holy in Christ so that we would mirror our heavenly father. Christian, do you realize this is why Christ chose you? He chose you not to leave you in the pig pen. He chose you to pull you out of the pig pen and to clean you so that you, like Paul, would be changed and conformed into his image so that when he would look at you, you would look more and more like your brother Jesus. So he chose us in order that we would be blameless and holy. You and I, we love the fact that we can choose. We love this, especially as Americans. It's especially what we celebrate almost more than anything else is the fact that we can make choices and not have them imposed on us. We love the fact that we can go to the store and go up and down the aisle and look at all the choices and finally come up with the one that we say, that's ours, that we make that decision. We choose this. Um, we, we love the fact that we can elect our representatives, our senators, our president, we stake so much on this that I think that if you took the, away our ability to vote, or it even begins to be in question whether or not our vote counts, you want to incite a riot or a civil war. Take away our choice. Now, I have to admit, I mean, at times our ability to choose our, our leaders has worked out for us, and other times it hasn't worked out so well for us, but the, the, the point stands that in a country like ours, there is a chance, and we've seen this in the past, that who we choose as our leader can shift and change our country. And if this is true for us, God himself participates in his choosing. And it is for his reasons and his purposes that he's chosen many of us to be his children. Now, you and I, when we choose, when I go up and down the aisle, I, I go for things that I find to be praiseworthy. I look for merits in something like ooh, this has a good price, or ooh, this has the ingredients that I want. And I say, this has merit, this has merit, and so I buy out of the value and worth of the item, and I make that choice. But God, it's interesting, this is how God works in a different way than you and I. He's not, he's not going to elect based on our merits, but it's on the merits of Christ. Do you understand that? That our good God says Christ is worthy, and therefore he chooses Anything he chooses, anyone he chooses, must be in Christ to be worthy. That is, Christ's merits have been placed on them. And that is the truth that blows me away. That Jesus Christ called Saul to become Paul. And why? Not because Paul was so righteous. No. Not because Paul was so humble. No, he was the opposite. In pride and arrogance, he fought against Christ. No. No. He chose Paul just as he chose you and I for his own free purposes and reasons. He broke into his life, interrupted it, and transformed him, made him do a 180. I can tell you one thing, and you probably would agree with me. If it were up to me, I wouldn't choose me. 
I wouldn't call me. I, I look at my life and I say, I look at my past, no way. I look at my present and all the things I would like to do and the type of, you know, I say, man, no. But this is where amazing grace becomes amazing. With the fact that the doctrine of predestination and adoption comes in and says, for God's good purposes and reasons, he called us. Notice the text doesn't read, he called us to holiness and blameless so that now he can adopt us. Now he can love us. Now he can save us. No, friends, the ordering is so important here. Catch this. If you walk away with this this morning, it will be crucial and key that if you don't hear anything else, hear this. That grace leads to holiness and not holiness leading to grace. That's good news for you and I this morning. Because if you really understand what I'm saying, the reason God gave us grace is that through this grace, we would become like Christ. We would be first already considered holy in Christ positionally. And then because we have this amazing grace, we slowly but surely look more and more like Jesus so that we actually truly are even earthly more holy. This ordering is important that not only positionally, but actually we would grow in holiness and we get that first by grace that leads us to be sanctified. Something similar happens when we, in our time, adopt children. They may have been adopted out of an awful circumstance, but when they are adopted, the cool thing is we see that they become more and more like the family that they're adopted into. So that first they receive the grace being pulled out of a bad circumstance, and now they slowly but surely look and mirror more and more like their new family. What would have happened to them now won't. And the status of the new family and parents and mother and father are conferred onto the children. If the adopted parents are rich, now the children are rich. If the adopted parents are are strong and safe, well, now the children are strong and safe. There may be few things more crucial to us as Christians than the fact that we were, as the picture is, you and I were adopted. J.I. Packer, he puts it this way. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his or her father. If this is not the first thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that they do not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Listen, Father is the Christian name for God. And this is so true that when our Heavenly Father adopts us, it is not as though He has His real children and then we are His adopted children. That's not how this works. Friends, you do understand that this type of adoption that we're speaking of makes us his children, real children, period. A young mother, she wrote into Reader's Digest. She says, I stayed with my parents for several days after the birth of our first child. And one afternoon, I remarked to my mother that it was surprising that our baby had dark hair since both my husband and I are fair. She said, well... Your daddy has black hair. But the new mother responded saying, but mama, that doesn't matter because I'm adopted. And with an embarrassed smile, she said the most wonderful words I've ever heard. I 
I always forget. She says, I, I always forget. That's right. You were adopted. And we can picture God saying to us, I always forget. Because from before the foundation of the world, you've been mine. You're my child. You belong to me. You've always belonged to me. And it is so true that even Jesus himself prays this way, thinking about God as our father. He says, our father who is in heaven. He says, you're to pray this way. Pray, my father. And Paul begins this tightly woven intro with the father who adopts us. It's an adoption that is so final and so true and so real that prior to the cross, prior to Abraham, you know what? Honestly, prior to the fall, prior to Adam and Eve, prior to the creation of of the whole world, it was done and it was a done deal before the foundation of the world. You belong to him. Sealed. Signed. In blood. It's done. Why am I a Christian who is being formed into Christ's image? Because this was the wonderful plan of God to reveal his grace to you. Why is God's grace worth praising? Easy. Because God, our Heavenly Father in love, chose us to become holy and blameless through that grace. Maybe let's just put it another way. Let me take another swing at this to put it this way to say that God's plan and purpose was to ensure that you would be his people. So praise him. Even this grand entrance into this book has some very practical ways I think that this lands on us this morning and even tomorrow morning or this week or this month. I mean, Ephesians is a book about God's plan to envelop the entire world. Well, how's he going to do that? He's going to do it through the church, his people. And, and as we've seen pictured for us here, this isn't some sterile God who's up in the clouds as an old grandpa who's frowning at you. No. What is the picture? The picture is a loving father with arms open wide, wanting to scoop you up and embrace you and love you. That's the picture that we have and save us out of this destruction. Now, I know from many of your stories where you have said, my father or my mother, they weren't really there for me. Your earthly father was out of the picture, sometimes uh, figuratively and oftentimes literally out of the picture. Um, even those of us with good fathers, we look at them and we say, well, they, they have at times failed us. Some of you fathers here, you, you men are in the same position I am. You look at your own parenting and you just say, man, how flawed I am at being a father. I just think of all the things I wish I could be for my children and it's impossible. I can't, I, I, I just, no, no matter what I do, I can't, I can't save them from all the mistakes. I, I, I can't save them from uh, physically getting hurt. I can't save them from physical death. I can't even save them from spiritual death, but their heavenly father can, and he, he's adopted them and loves them as he loves us. And when you and I, with the shifting shores of our time, we can wonder, will anything good remain? Can there be any kind of guarantee for hope? Particularly for the Christian, we can put it in terms of fatherhood. No matter what is to come, we ask, do I have the love of a father who cares for me? And Ephesians 1 shouts, he cares with you. He cares for you with a love that is timeless. It was your father's plan to love you before you were you. He spared nothing to adopt you. It was at the cost of Jesus Christ, his son, to adopt you into his family. He chose you, friends, and he's not going to unchoose you. 
And praise God, nothing can stop his plan to love you, Christian, nothing. So I ask, will I be able to provide for my family? Will my health hold up? Will my children or my grandchildren become or remain Christians? What can I do with my circumstances when they're not as I wish them to be? And look and say, ah, I struggle to love. Am I even lovable myself? And this letter begins, there's something more foundational about you than anything going on right now regarding your health or your wealth or your job or your joy. That is you being saved, taken from being an orphan to being adopted with the father who loves you and will give you all things you need to do to make it safely home in the heavenlies with him. Now, I've not been adopted. I have not adopted any children either. But someone close to me has been adopted. My mother-in-law, who many of you know, she's with us this morning, Joellen Woodrow. She was adopted. And her story is amazing. It's interesting. As she grew up and heard the story, she saw that her biological parents did not want her, so they left her at a Catholic orphanage, ditching her. And there was another couple who came along, and as they looked through the children, they said, this one, we're scooping up this precious daughter. And they grabbed a hold of her, and they loved her like she was one of their own. And years later, as she was able to get in touch with her biological family, she slowly but surely began to unravel what had happened. She began to get in touch with um, siblings and, and half-siblings and to hear the story about her own um, you know, biological mother. And as the unfolding happened, she found out that not only did her biological parents did not want her, but she found out from the siblings that they said that um, the biological mother denied her existence. When they came up and questioned, now were you, weren't you pregnant? Didn't you have this child? She outright denied the whole thing. And then something else interesting happened. She found out that when the time that Joellen was around age three, well, there was a trailer fire. And if what the siblings said is true, it would have been unlikely that she would have survived as this little toddler, this trailer fire. And it became real to Joellen in that moment that her adoption saved her in so many ways, because not only did it open up the doors for her to hear about God, but it saved her from, from a, a horrific upbringing in this awful family. But it probably, in all likelihood, saved her from the flames. And Christian, I'm, I'm here to tell you, you may not be physically adopted, but spiritually, this is very much what has happened to you. That your Heavenly Father has scooped you out, chose you, called you. And that in this saving, it was, yes, uh, most definitely a spiritual saving. And yes, from the flames, he has saved you and called you his own. And this whole wonderful movement, as Paul's kind of just traipsing through, thinking about how these dots all connect, with God from before the foundation, calling you, adopting you, swooping you up, and doing this all through Christ, it leads him to kind of, as we pause here, we're going to pause right here in the middle of this long run-on sentence, but it just makes him kind of stop and say, praise the grace. Praise 
this grace lift high. I mean, we want to lift high Jesus' name, but also at the same time, just make much of Jesus, lifting up the grace that we have in him. Look at how this concludes here. We'll, we'll pause here. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let me read that one more time. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the grace. Praise the glorious grace this morning. And as I close in prayer, that is exactly what I would desire that you would do with me. That we would, through our prayer, as we sing, lift up the grace of God. Would you pray? Father, we see Paul speaking with such joy at this truth and such excitement about the work that you have done breaking into our lives. And let that be for us too this morning. That our hope is anchored in the Heavenly Father who loves us at great cost to His Son. And that it is as good as done from before the foundations of the world. That we would breathe that sigh of relief knowing that we belong to you. And Lord, we praise the grace that saved us not just from spiritual wreckage, but from the fire and the joy that we have now as we join Paul in praising the Son and the grace provided. In Jesus' name, amen.